Uh, so, Wynne, tell me now, where does your connection with Johnny Tudor's family, how far back does that go? Um, a week or two. Back <laughs> Just to, I think, 1952. Am I that old, Wynne? <laughs> At least. <laughs> was it Panto with my, with my parents? That's right, in Swansea. All right. And you were in uh, short trousers. That's right. And I think you're still wearing them, aren't you? <laughs> I am. The, uh, it was a memorable occasion or, or season there in Swansea because on the 2nd of February, because pantomimes then used to run well into February and March, on the 2nd of February, the king died. All right. And... The story went round so many of the pantomimes in the country of people arriving at rehearsals and being told, oh, the king is dead. And their reaction was, who's his understudy? <laughs> because so many pantomimes had a king in them. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> Can I take you back then, uh, Mr Calvin? Um, and Calvin, it's a good name because you come from a... Well, from a family of preachers? Yes, um, a family well well steeped in um, Presbyterianism, mm -hmm. in nonconformity in, uh, in Wales. But they're the black sheep of the family. We um, <laughs> go silent about them. <laughs> now, my, um, my grandfather, my father was a preacher, my Eldest brother was a, a minister, Presbyterian minister. Um, my uncle was a Presbyterian minister. There were a lot of them involved in in the nonconformist church in Wales. I'm told that even as a little boy, you wanted your voice heard in church, particularly because the the preacher seemed to have all the all the talking time, didn't he? Well, yes, I was told, I remember uh, as a child in church, I was told, you mustn't talk in church and I said well he's talking all the time <laughs> <laughs> did you do you remember much about growing up in Narbeth no not a lot I left Narbeth when I was five but I've always said that Pembrokeshire has remained home of the heart yeah because when we came to Cardiff and I've been in Cardiff for 90 years. But when we came to Cardiff, it was to Pembrokeshire that we went always for our school holidays. Mm. And they were very, very important to us in growing up, going down to um, Bigelli, uh, Kilgetty, to the aunts and uncles who were down there in Pembrokeshire. And Pembrokeshire remained, as I say, has remained home of the heart. Mm. Now then, you say 90 years ago, Wynne, but you, even as a young child, you had a bit of a reputation for, uh, for lying about your age. Is that right on the train going to Cardiff? On the trains, under four, you didn't have to have a ticket. And I was asked afterwards, after the journey, how old are you? And I said, well, I'm four, but three on the train. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about your age, Wynne, when you did that panto with my parents, it, like when the king died, you must have been in your 20s, were you? Yes. And you were playing the Baron at 20. 
Yeah, it was um, it was one of my first pantomimes. Ah, right. Uh, I was to do 54 pantomimes altogether, but it was one of my first pantomimes in Swansea. Yeah. In lovely Swansea. In lovely Swansea. And I think it was you and Gladys Morgan, I believe, was playing one of the Ugly Sisters. Yes. And I think the only time I ever saw my father in drag, he was playing the other Ugly Sisters. The other, yes, (laughs) yes. Your father was a lovely performer and your mum was a darling. Well, she played the fairy, if I remember. Yes. Yeah. What was was Gladys good? Was Gladys Morgan a good performer? I mean, she's got a great reputation. Oh, she was wonderful. Gladys was amazing. Very funny woman. I had seen Gladys in a a show in in Lancashire, and. Uh, I was then working for uh, an impresario called Ernest Binns, who was known as the Cochran of the North. And I told him, I've seen this very, very funny woman. You're looking for a dame for pantomime. Um, I think you'll find her. No, he said, I don't like women dames. No. And the company manager then said, told me, I'll go and have a look at her. And he went over that evening to this theater where Gladys and family were appearing. And uh, when he came back the following morning, Ernest Bin said to him, what did you think of her? Oh, he said, she's very, very good. And he said, well, I don't like women dames. And he said, well, I've booked her. (laughs) (laughs) That was the end of that. And in, during the run of the pantomime that she was in, I went over to chat to them in the dressing room after the performance. And I mentioned that I had a vague involvement with Welsh Rebbit at the time. Ah, right. And um, she said, oh, I'd love to be able to do that program. I'd love to be on it. And I said, well, I think you'd be wonderful. But... They're only using Welsh people. And she said, I am Welsh, love. I come from Swansea. I said, but you work with a northern northern accent here in Lancashire. She said, yes, that's where the work is. Ah, adaptable, right. adaptable. That's mm. what you want to be. Exactly. Yeah. And did you, get the, did you get her the gig, Win? Did you get her the gig well, on Welsh I, Rabbit? I told May Jones about her. And May's reaction was may was the producer of welsh rabbit and may's reaction was very much the same oh uh, i don't like women uh, comedians and i said well you use maudie edwards she said yes but she sings (laughs) and i said well this one's got a wonderful voice too so she was going to be at the town hall in pontepreeth a week or so afterwards and May went over to see her, to see what she thought. And May booked her that night for the following weeks, um, Welsh Rabbit, to do a two-minute spot. That was Gladys's first broadcast. Wow. And she went on to become a great radio personality and yeah. an absolute darling. <laughs> 
nice to be here anyway. <laughs> well, I'm glad you like my little blazer. You like it? Yes, I bought this. I bought this to go to Blackpool this summer. Yes, you know, on my holidays. I generally go to Port Call, but I thought I'd have a change this time, you know. Yes. We had some lovely apartments in Blackpool. Oh, <laughs> I shall never forget them. <laughs> Three minutes from the sea if you had a flying saucer. Yeah. Uh, radio made names hmm. because radio created characters that people wanted to see yeah. and therefore were prepared to go and pay a few bob to see them in the theatre. Radio filled theatres before television emptied them. <laughs> yes, I suppose you're right. That's a good <laughs> analogy. Be because let's face it, if you wanted to see a performer in those days, you went to the, the music hall and yeah. that's the only place you could see him. So you'd heard him on the radio, oh, I'm going to go see this guy. So The great eras of twice nightly variety. Now then, Wynne, let's can we go back not as far as Narbeth, but for you becoming a performer. Um, how, how did it how did it start then in the sort of professional sense? Because you weren't going to become a preacher. I think the church probably missed out on a great preacher. You became a performer. Where did it start? Was it the war? Yeah, I'd been serving before the um, RASC Royal Army Service Corps or Runaway Something's Coming. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I was invalided out with a heart problem. And as I came out, I thought, well, I can't join them, so I'll try and entertain them. And I got a job with ENSA, E-N-S-A, every night something atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> and ENSO was the, the great uh, organization for entertaining the, the forces. And uh, I got into this review as the juvenile in the review, feeding the comic and doing a bit of singing. And we were told... You're going over to France, Belgium, and Holland, but you will have to be in uniform because if you're taken prisoner over there, the war was still raging. If you're taken prisoner, you will be treated as military. But if you're in mufti, you will be treated as spies and shot. So we had to be in uniform. <laughs> The day that I was put into that uniform, Hitler committed suicide. So you can see the impact of putting me into an ENSA uniform. I spent six months with that review in Germany, and I was so impressed with the German people who were so resilient in defeat. And mm. the theatres that we were playing, the local staff was so delighted that their theater was being used again because theaters had been closed in Germany for about two years. Mm. And the local staffs were so cooperative and helpful. We opened for the first time in months, maybe a couple of years, the opera house in Dusseldorf. I think she was the local schoolmistress or a schoolmistress was acting as interpreter. 
for anything that we wanted, she conveyed to the staff in German. I had a lot of changes in that review, and I needed a dresser. So I told her, I'll have to have a dresser. And she said, ah, yeah, yeah, he's good, the dresser is good, he's good. When I arrived at the theater for the performance later in the day, there were four fellows trying to get a sideboard <laughs> into the dressing room. Look at Welsh dresser. <laughs> she'd, looked, she'd looked up dresser in the dictionary. <laughs> so you had to be, when you were doing these shows, obviously you had to be um, able to go with the flow. You had to be able to, you know, adapt to the, the situation. But also if other members of the cast weren't around, you, you know, the show had to go on. Did you have to do other people's parts as well? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, in a review, you, um, you appear in lots of different characters, of course. But um, the principal comedian in the show, now, a victorious army does not steal anything. Mm -hmm. They liberate it. <laughs> and he was helping to liberate lots of the German wines that he'd been deprived of for the previous <laughs> six years until he became impossible and saying, I can't go on, I can't do this anymore, I must go home, I must go home, I'm, I can't go on, I can't do it. And the company manager, who's the pianist, said, he's not going on tonight, but the show goes on. And I was told that you carry on for a little while because they're going to send a replacement for the comedian from London. And I'm still waiting for the replacement. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you should say that the theatres have been closed there, Wynne. Well, I, I remember my father telling me that they, they kept the theatres open in Britain because when the Aries would come over, they'd be all under the stage. You know, I, you know, I mean, it was unbelievable. They, and they, the show went on, whether it was bombs dropping or not. Yes, uh, it was remarkable that during the war, there was this amazing determination to carry on. Yeah. Here in Cardiff in 1941, the 2nd of January, 1941, 111 German planes came over to destroy the city. And the following morning, I went down to see the smoking ruins of the school I was going to in Canton. And I remember thinking, that Hitler can't be all bad. <laughs> <laughs> it was exactly what I wanted to do to the place. You know, you so say you won the war. When? I think we can quite safely say that you joined Ensor and won the war. Um, coming back to Civvy Street, did you become a professional straight away? Did the doors open for you with that experience? Immediately, I went into weekly rep, performing in the evening a play, but during the day, you are rehearsing next week's play. And one producer that we had in one of the long seasons that I did at St. Anne's on Sea, this, he was one of the old school. And on a Tuesday night, never a Monday night, a Monday night was always the first night in weekly work. But on a Tuesday night, he would be standing at the back of the stalls. And if there was a bit of dialogue that he didn't hear, he used to yell. 
Are you keeping it a secret? (laughs) (laughs) And if there was the danger of that voice coming from the back of the stalls, you made sure that yours was heard at the back of the circle. Wow. But without shouting. Without shouting. We spoke to Ruth the other day, Ruth Maddock, and she was saying the same thing. Her mum used to come and sit at the back of the stalls and then she'd go back afterwards and say, you're mumbling. Or, you know, she'd make sure that the diction was... And no microphones, because, Johnny, you've been saying this as well. You'd go panto, no microphones. Well, even when I did a a musical in the West End in the 70s, uh, in the Fortune Theatre, there was no mics. We just did it live. And and my father always used to tell me, never keep your eye line. You can always tell somebody who's been brought up in theatre, not club land, nothing to to disparage the clubs, but they always, you've got to look at the circle, not the the stalls. So if you're looking at the stalls, they they see the top of your head from the the circle. So he said, make your eye line the circle. Very, very valuable advice. And all the greats, the great, Variety performers always played up. Yeah. Not down to the stalls, but always up to the circles. That's right, that's right. You got used yeah. to using a microphone because I've seen a lovely picture of you, win <laughs> with a flat cap on. I think it must have been workers' playtime. You, so you got used to using the microphone for the radio at least. Oh, workers' jerkers. Oh, <laughs> yes, workers' jerkers. <laughs> workers' jerkers. The, um, I did so many workers' playtimes, they called me the workers' plaything. <laughs> Didn't they do it in canteens, Win? Yes, during the war. Ernest Bevin, who was the um, Minister of Works or Minister of something, and he was intent on seeing that the wireless was used to be helpful to those who were working in factories doing war production, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And he um, said twice a week in the lunch hour, they should have variety performers. But he also had the idea that uh, there should be a lot of music. And that was the beginning of music while you work. Ah, right. I remember that as a kid. It ran on for years after the war. It ran on to the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. When when you got that break, how how did you feel? You know, because you've done all these little gigs. uh, You know, like Johnny got his big break with Opportunity Knocks and suddenly there's a whole world out there that knows about you. Was it that sort of uh, uh, feeling when you got, you know, got appointed into workers' playtime? It gave me some sort of elevation in the fact that from the north of Scotland to the south coast, some people were aware of this. A lot weird, of people. A lot of people were aware. Weird, this weird Welsh comic. So, uh, how how did your life work out then, when So you're doing a little bit of radio. You're doing um, you're doing variety, um, and then pantom. So the whole of the year was was busy. Was it summer seasons and all those sort of things? The calendar of the year was all mapped out. Yes, if you did a good pantomime, and pantomimes then used to run into March and April. In fact, the longest ever pantomime run was in Leeds in 1945 with Norman Evans, who was hugely popular. 
uh, over the garden wall. His pantomime ran in Leeds until June. 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 Oh, God. <laughs> and the girls, the dancers, who'd been arriving at the theatre for rehearsals in the snow, finished up sunbathing on the roof of the theatre. <laughs> <laughs> You played many parts in Panto. I remember seeing you as uh, Humpty Dumpty up in Leeds, that was. Yes, I, I played Humpty for six years. Mm. That was a lovely pantomime, a very good. It was specially written for Harry Seacombe, and he played it at the Palladium, and then I went into it to play the principal pantomime theatres in the country. Now, we skirted around it, and skirting is the right word, because you've you've made your mark uh, on UK um, theatrical history with your performance as Dame. Were you a natural Dame? Do I sound like one? (laughs) (laughs) She's definitely got a rough voice at the moment, if she has. (laughs) No, no, no. No, I I never wanted to play Dame. I'd been playing Humpty Dumpty, you mentioned, but I've been playing things like Idle Jack and Buttons, etc., in pantomimes. And um, Tom Arnold, who was then the king of pantomime productions, said, next year I want you in skirts. (laughs) Now that means playing pantomime dame. Dame? In skirts, not in drag. In drag, you are a female impersonator. Yeah. In skirts, you are a dame, which is a very, very different approach. A dame leaves small kiddies in the audience aware that it's a fella dressed up, and that's why it's funny. And But I said, oh, no, no, I don't feel feminine. I don't feel feminine, Tom. I couldn't play dame. He said, that's why you'll make a good dame. Les Dawson was a good dame. Jack Tripp was a good dame. You know, they didn't camp it up. They played it like a bloke in a skirt, as you say. (laughs) Yes, Les. Uh, What a character he was. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Yes. One of the names that one feels was a great privilege to have worked with. Les was naturally funny man. Yeah. But he was becoming obese. He was becoming big. And he'd been told he had to slim. And he arrived one day and he said, Oh, I've been slimming. I've lost seven stone. I got rid of the wife. <laughs> <laughs> he was very funny. He was there. So very, very funny. Oh, yeah. 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 So, oh, right, you, you become a dame. Were, were you... And I know you're a modest man, Wynne. Um, were you good straight away? Was it was it the part that, that you were you were born to play? I never examined it that much. I just got on with doing what I thought was right. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember doing a panto with you, when I think it, you were Widow Twanky, and I couldn't yeah. believe how many changes you had. I mean, you must have been worn out. But th- i got to tell you this, uh, Mal. Whenever you work with Wynne, he's the only man I've ever known in show business that could have a skip between a scene. He, he, he had his lilo, he'd have five minutes, he'd put his clock on, he'd wake up and he'd walk straight on the stage and do his next bit. How he did it, I'll never know. I wouldn't know what I was doing. <laughs> Some 15 years ago or so, I had a heart operation and the um, afterwards the consultant said, I would advise you now 
always to have a little sleep uh, in the afternoon. And I said, I have done that ever since I went into the theatre as a teenager. I have always had a sleep in the afternoon. And he said, that is probably why you weren't with us for this operation 10 years ago. Well, that's right. Ah, well, yeah. I'm going to take but that advice. The, the Mediterraneans know the value of the siesta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, of, of all the, the pantomimes that you've played, because you played Mother to some amazing people, you played Mother to uh, Frank Bruno, dear Frank Bruno. That must have been quite an experience. Oh, yes, dear man, Um, a great pal, a great pal. But he was huge box office because he was a very big name at the time. Mm. And I was mother to Frank at Nottingham one year and the following year at Liverpool, I was mother to Mr. T from the (laughs) A-team. Mr. T coming from America, did he know what what was expected of him? They needed a big name, and he was then a big attraction on television. So they booked him in America, and they said, and we'll send you a script. And he said, script? I won't need a script. It's all mine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He thought it was Marcel Marceau. (laughs) (laughs) Favourite pantomime runs that you had? You you enjoyed being um, Humpty Dumpty. Were there any others that you really, you know, look back on now and think, oh, that was a a great run? Oh, there's so many of those. um, um, Only only once at Hereford, and that was in 1955, I played... um, Buttons, a lovely, lovely uh, character to play. Dickie Henderson played uh, Buttons um, with, no, he played Robinson, he played Billy Crusoe, and he had this piece of paper, and he gave it to Alwyn, he said, for Buttons, read Billy, for <laughs> Billy, read Buttons. He had to use the same script for whatever he did. He just changed the name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bringing a star like Dickie Henderson into a show, did he play it his own way then, Johnny? Was that something that... He played it like he was doing Vegas. I mean, he'd walk on and go, hello, kids. And he'd throw the, the sweets out in the audience and say, ah, just a bit of bribery for my friends. <laughs> he was like, so laid back, you know what I mean? <laughs> Playing the game in Birmingham. And I was throwing sweets out to kids in the audience. And there was a bunch of kids up in the circle shouting to me, Sir, mister, up here. (laughs) That's a pantomime dame. (laughs) (laughs) But see, some of these old gags, they were, I mean, you you know them all. I mean, but they don't, the newcomers, they don't know them. Like the the busy bee gag. uh, (laughs) And then there's the, uh, the, the echo gag. You can't just and, say uh, that. You've got to say what they are for a young man like me. Oh, oh yeah. Well, we don't realise that you don't know what they are. You're too young, see? You lost your hair, but you're too young. <laughs> well, the busy bee gag, I mean, it, it, I can't even know. How does it go? Oh, somebody comes on and 
uh, and gets the, the, the straight man with this guy. They got a mouthful of water. They say, you say, busy bee, busy bee, what you got in the hive for me? And I'll give you some honey. He said, that's all I got to do. Yes, okay. So the other guy runs off, gets a mouthful of water. When he says, busy bee, busy bee, what you got in the hive for me? He spits it right in his chops. So that was the, so then he has to try and catch out the comedian. Now the comedian comes on, but he gets wise to it halfway through, see? So I used to do it with Stan. Every time I'd be doing it, I'd have a mouthful of water and he'd be saying, uh, uh, busy, I can't, I can't remember. By this time, I've swallowed the blinking water, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, and then he'd run off. And in the end, he'd get me. It was a really funny guy. <laughs> yes. With some of the vintage pantomime performers, on a first day of rehearsal to the, for instance, the... Um, couple double act playing the broker's men or something and we'll say on the first day of rehearsal well we'll do the nottier gag the nottier, okay. yes. <laughs> and it would never be referred to again in the whole of the week's rehearsal until the dress rehearsal and then with those that sort of cherished performer yeah they would just pick it up so, oh we do the um, and they would know it and then there was the, the, the echo gag where somebody hides behind the tabs and, yeah. you, and, you, and you, you say, there's an echo in this village. You say, yeah, echo, yeah, and I'll show you. You go, hello, and the guy goes, hello. <laughs> See? Yeah. And then he says something stupid and the kids catch it up, catch on it's a bloody, you know, somebody messing about. They were fantastic, some of these old gags. They only lasted from generation to generation in Paris yeah. because they had a basic quality. Yeah, yeah. Now then, when, when Sir Ian McKellen had decided that he was going to do Panto for the first time, and it was, uh, you know, it was a big production, I'm not sure if it was the RSC, or it was, it was one of those major companies, uh, when, he, when he wanted to get advice for becoming a pantomime dame, he came to you, in. Well, I was sitting in my, um, at my table one morning, and phone goes, and a voice on the other end said, Mr. Calvin, yes, um... <laughs> Ian McKellen here. I said, Sir Ian. He said, well, more or less. <laughs> and he said, I have been um, invited to do a character that I'd always wanted to do, but never thought I would. It's Widow Twanky. And I'm told that you are the principal Widow Twanky in the country. And I'm wondering if you'll give me some guidance on playing the role. I said, do so with great pleasure, Sir Ian, if our diaries can find suitable time, we get together. He said, well, do you come to London? I said, yeah, yeah oh, I'm allowed out occasionally. <laughs> I said, do you know Gray's Inn Road? And he said, oh, it's just around the corner from me. And I said, well, then I think it would be a good idea we could meet up in the Water Grants Lodge. And he said, that would be a great privilege. And I thought, well, this great Hollywood star, this great classic performer reacting about being in the lodge of performers who were very different from him, coming from a very different style of entertainment. I thought, well, there's, there's depth in this lad, there's depth in him. We we met up, we chatted, and we've remained um, close pals ever since. Isn't that wonderful? Fantastic. Uh, but uh, going back to the water rats, you, you were King Rat once, weren't you? 
in the 150 year history of the grand order of water rats there's only ever been one welsh king rat well there's, there's there is only one win calvin it's been a joy to speak to you and, and just scrape the, the surface of so many wonderful stories we're now thanks to carol as well your, your dear beloved wife of how many years 45 years. Keep cooking, keep cooking, Carol. <laughs> as, as Carol once told me, the ha- happiest three years of her life. The happiest three years of her life, as Carol once said. Uh, lovely to have you with us and enjoy your supper and uh, and, and many, many more years of, of uh, telling your stories and being the clown prince of Wales. You are very kind. Thank you very much for the special pleasure of being with you again. You nice take to it. see you, Lloyd. Yeah, God, be good God bless to see you, you in the flesh when all this is all over. Absolutely. And love to Carol yeah. as well. Thank you very much. Yeah.